The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone. Last week we started uh, looking at Chapter 19 in Jack Hornfield's book, The Wise Heart, and this chapter is on training the mind, really. And in a way, it's training the mind. That always makes it sound like a lot of work, but really what we're doing is transforming the mind. And just like any project in life, Sometimes the transformation comes really easily, and sometimes, you know, it feels like we're, we have the forces of nature working against us. And you know how the difference is? Big jobs can get done when all the forces are aligned. And uh, no matter how much desire we have for something to happen, or how much volition, effort we make, sometimes we can't affect things. So the, the truth is, I think I can say this with great confidence, the truth is we would all like to control our minds. It doesn't take much human wisdom to realize how much suffering arises because of what our mind is doing. So mostly, I mean, we'd like to blame everybody out there, but with just a little bit of reflection, we begin to understand we can't just keep blaming our partners, our families, the world, our bosses for the stress, the feeling of being burdened by life. We can't blame them because we're recognizing how we can create a mess without any help from the world <laughs> or our partners. We do this all the time. Sometimes we look around and we go, my God, it's a nice day. You know, my partner, my friends, they love me. I'm healthy. You know, why is life so hard? So, we have to first understand that the work of training and transforming the mind is owning that responsibility. And then that what makes it so difficult is we want to train and transform the mind in the way that we know how to train and transform the mind. But that may not be how the mind is actually trained and transformed. I mentioned last week, if you were here, that one of the more pithy statements from the Buddha is that there is no enemy worse than, an un, than our own untrained mind and no friend, not even loving parents, that would be more helpful than your own trained mind. So we need to train the mind, but we have to bring an attitude to this training. We have to be really open-minded and fresh and pragmatic about how to actually work with the mind that we have. 
And even if, you know, nowadays especially, we have all of the current and ancient wisdom at our fingertips. You know, we can access the teachings of anybody with any wisdom and all the people without any wisdom. <laughs> of course, we don't know the difference often. So we have a lot of information about how to work with the mind or how to be a good person. Lots of people selling advice and offering advice. But one of the things that we, we start to get is that we can't take one answer, okay, this is how to work with the mind, because it's a dynamic thing. I mean, I think there are some underlying principles we can learn and understand about the mind. But one of the things that's revealed and why mindfulness is such an essential ingredient to any wholesome transformation of the mind is because mindfulness is based on this freshness. You know, to be mindful, we're being mindful now. We're showing up now. We're doing the training now. We're not imposing some idea on the mind. The way that we train the mind directly comes from being connected with how it is now. We don't approach the moment with a preconceived idea, oh, this is how I work with the mind, this is how it is. Sometimes we hear another one of these pithy phrases coming out of Buddhism, you know, that right view is not having any view at all. And that's, you know, philosophically interesting. We can have lots of discussions about what that means. But just in a simple moment of being open, being mindful, like it means not having a view. Or the emphasis, the direction of the mind is in being open, not in imposing or projecting anything. And so any response, any technique, it's not something I'm bringing to the moment, the ego is bringing to the moment. It's the natural response of a mind that's open, that's sensitive, that's clear, that's you know, unafraid, uninhibited. So the mind will respond. So this is what skill looks like. You know, instead of like, you know, imagine a manual, some of you I'm sure are parents, imagine a manual that tells you how to raise your kids. I mean, how would the author know every particular situation you're going to have with your kids? Or a manual like how to be a good partner, or be a good citizen, or a good human being. But, you know, we could have a sentence that would basically invite us, invite the mind to be open, like, okay, this is how you be a good parent, a good partner, a good citizen, is to really show up. Instead of having a strategy, we, we show up. I mentioned last week, um, you know, sometimes we show up and just that showing up is enough. Like we can transform the mind. We could be in a real funk, caught in some self-centered drama about not being good enough or being so much better than everybody else or you know, any of the number of dramas we can be in. Nobody loves me. I'm not deserving of love or I'm deserving of better friends than I have. 
I'm ugly, I'm stupid, it's not fair. So we can be in so many of those kinds of dramas, caught in it, and in an instant, through natural causes and conditions, the mind opens. And in its opening, it recognizes that particular drama, that particular self-centered drama, it recognizes what it is. It's just thinking. It's just thinking being known. I know it always sounds a little like so, but there's a, a world of difference between being identified with the content of our self-centered drama and a moment of awakening to just thought. It's just the activity of the mind and body being known, without attachment, without identification. So, in a sense, this is the direct way to transform the mind. It's not the <laughs> easy, or it, maybe it is easy, but it's easy, it's simple, but that doesn't mean it's going to happen. It's not going to happen until it's the habit of the mind to happen. Mostly it's not the habit of the mind to wake up with that powerful clarity, that powerful simplicity, so the mind isn't projecting. And because it's not projecting anything on the moment, it's in that clear, receptive mode, and it just recognizes without anybody having to do anything. Well, this is just stuff happening. Or as one teacher said, you know, empty phenomena rolling on mind stuff rolling on, sensation, body sensations rolling on, sound, sight, just stop moving, experience happening. All of it being known. And the weight drops away in that moment, in that direct moment of opening, the weight or any sense of being burdened or struggling with experience, having expectations or agendas, it tends to fall away, for a moment at least. So that's always the first approach to practice, is just to bring that practice, bringing that simple, open attention to the present moment. And just seeing things as they are. Seeing is just seeing, hearing is just hearing, thinking is just thinking, feeling sensations, just sensations being known. And then if, that, if we open, but then the mind gets caught, it's sort of in this relationship to what it's seeing, where in a, in a way it takes it personally, the thoughts that are being known are taken personally. We sort of know, oh, it's just thinking, but why am I thinking that? And why did the person say that? So we both have some, some awareness and some identification. Same with the sensations. We can have some space that the body's like this, the back is like this, the knees are like this, the temperature's like this, and some struggle or some identification, taking it all, the sensations all very personally. Same with our sights, what we're seeing, what we're hearing. So this is a more common place for us, right? Where there's some space in the mind. The mind isn't completely lost in reactive patterns to, its ex to what it's experiencing, but it's not completely free, unburdened by what it's experiencing. 
And so here the practice has to be very creative because we have to, uh, like I was saying earlier, how we're going to work with the mind, train the mind, and transform the mind, it's really going to come out of the moment. It's going to be pragmatic. It's a lot of trial and error. I mean, basically the question is, what can be done, you know, in this mode of being a human being, having a mind, not wanting to suffer, right? We're still, in this place, we're operating as an ego who wants to be happy. And this is a familiar place. We don't want to take Buddhist teachings to somehow deny this place. Because when we're a human being that wants not to be burdened by our minds or being burdened by our experience, then that's how it is. We need to be really honest with ourselves. I don't want to be obsessing about what people think about me. Or I don't want to be obsessing about how I'm going to retire when I haven't saved anything. Or whether this person still loves me. So we, we have that very real motivation to be free from our mental, emotional, life suffering, stress, fear, craving. We want to be free. And so we try things. You know, we can take the teachings we get from teachers or from books, from the Buddha. But the important thing is to keep bringing mindfulness because then when we try a strategy, we want to continue to be mindful to see what is the effect of what was just done. If I bring in a particular attitude, particular technique, maybe I redirect my attention. Maybe I bring up some way I bring up the experience of loving kindness. Maybe I remind myself, oh, it's just a thought. It seems like it's my thought, but I just say to myself, because I heard it's a good strategy, but it's just thinking, just thinking. And then the key is, whatever the strategy is, is to continue to observe the mind, and in particular to observe the presence or absence of mental suffering. Because this is the only way we know whether our way of relating, our way of being in the moment is effective. Is it leading to the mind's release, the heart's release, or is it leading in the direction of more tension, feeling of being bound up, feeling of being the one who is suffering? It's really, practice is designed to be pragmatic, and we learn a lot. It's amazing how quickly we learn. I mean, just think about, not just human beings, but other animals. Just think about how much they learn through trial and error. I mean, when you think about little babies, whether it's a human baby or a baby bear, or you take any little baby, how incredibly vulnerable they are and unskilled they are. And then, you know, some of the, our close relatives, you know, mammals, how long is it before they become an adult? I mean, just take a dog. How long is it before a dog becomes an adult? I never had a dog, but it's what, a year, 15 months, something like that, right? And in that time, they basically have mastered so many skills through trial and error. You know, things work, or they eat something and they get sick and they won't eat it again. You know, they mess with a porcupine and they'll never do that again. <laughs> if ever one of the most horrible sights is seeing a dog that has messed with a porcupine. And this is the same way. If we brought that careful attention to our own mind, 
imagine, you know, however old you are, imagine if we brought that kind of uh, powerful, motivated attention to what the mind is doing and then the results that come from how the mind is relating, how the mind is being in the world. I mean, we do this a little bit as teenagers. We, it's just, if you ever studied child psychology or psychology, you know that you know one of the things we do when we're teenagers is we try out different identities. And some of us just keep doing that. <laughs> so we try, and, and then we, we see the response we get from people around us. Well, this is just a more subtle, sophisticated, or uh, deep version of that, where because we're trying on views, ways of being, ways of relating all the time. And then after a while, we just use the same one over and over again. It doesn't matter if it doesn't work. It's like the only thing we know, and it's just too much work to take a different approach. So we just keep, you know, keep bringing the same attitude, the same view to our life, our life problems, and we get very much the same response and, and uh, reaction from the world. And then we complain because, you know, God, it's always happening. What's, what's going wrong? But then we just do the same thing over again. And then if we're lucky, something stirs up our life. Maybe we get really sick, and that shocks us a little bit, or the person we love leaves us, and that shocks us, or something happens, and, and we become a little bit more childlike. The Buddha has a place where he talks about if we're suffering, one of the things that can happen is we can either uh, suffer in response to suffering. He talks about beating our breast and wailing and lamenting, which of course doesn't help. Or when we suffer, the other option is suffering can open us up and make us inquisitive. Is there anything I can, any information I can take in from some source that seems reliable enough that will give me a different perspective? Because the one thing I know is that I don't know. Right? So then we get some new information and we try it out. We practice relating that way. So the way it's described in the Buddhist tradition is in terms of the four exertions. So what we're doing is, this is the messy place where just being open isn't transforming the mind as much as it can and does in moments. In this, these moments, it's not. Because whatever is happening in the mind around us is so seductive, it's triggering our attachment, the mind's attachment and identification. And then the reactive patterns follow from that attachment. So we know we know enough, we're mindful enough to know we're caught. We're caught in reactive patterns that aren't productive, that aren't helping anybody. And we're suffering, we know that much. And we're not just going to lament and wail because we're suffering, we're going to look. And we get some instruction. And the instructions, you know, really not just Buddhist instructions, they're all about, this is what our friends tell us, they're either going to tell us to abandon certain things, certain habits, certain ways of relating, or prevent some unwholesome habits from arising. So abandoning and preventing unwholesome qualities in the mind. Because as long as we have some sense that the way the mind is is contributing to the suffering we're experiencing, then 
it makes sense that there's some things we want to let go of in the mind, some attitudes or ways of being, and want to prevent them from coming in once we have abandoned them. And the other thing we want to do is cultivate and maintain wholesome states. I mean, this is completely commonsensical. But this is the experimentation, the creative endeavor, where we're owning responsibility for the mind. It's this process, it's a messy process, where we're taking responsibility for abandoning unwholesome states, figuring out what's wholesome and unwholesome, and then once we have some sense, and it may not be initially accurate, that this is an unwholesome mind state, we practice releasing it. So, it's like, you know, I have a tendency to be irritable at times, and, um, you know, if I notice that I'm suffering because of my irritation, my tendency, of course, is to look around me, usually at my wife, <laughs> or at my problem, and then to blame my irritation, the pain that I'm feeling in my body and mind, to blame it on some external factor. Oh, I'm irritated, I'm upset, I'm stressed because of this out there. And then we're basically screwed because there's no learning. All we're going to do is like we feel either a victim or we want to change the world. And that's actually going in the wrong direction. You know, putting all of our effort in fixing our partners, fixing the world, is endless. It doesn't actually resolve the problem. In fact, in some ways it reinforces the problem. Because the mind, the sort of relative or conventional mind, can always find things, see things that are bad or imperfect or not to our liking. And even when things are as perfect as they can be, we'll know that they're not permanent. And that's irritating. So eventually we'll get that something here, as much as it's compelling that it's out there at the cause, we have a sense that it's here. And we'll look. And then we'll just practice this abandoning and preventing and the cultivating and the maintaining. Like what, we'll experiment, what state of mind might I be able to bring up that would relieve the stress associated with being irritated? I mean, we do this commonsensically, but do we, are we aware of it? Like, you know, sometimes when we're irritated, we, we might unconsciously just call a friend up. We're not even realizing that I'm calling a friend because he or she's good medicine, you know, and will lift me out of this irritating, this pattern of irritation that I'm, I seem to be stuck in. Because she won't see that pattern, you know. Because some friends, you know, they're just seated. Oh, yeah, you should be upset. You know, this person's really messing with you. You've got to do something about that. It's not fair. Or, you know, all kinds of ways that we're codependent with our reactive, unwholesome patterns. It really comes from this conviction. Some of you, I know, read, are reading the chapters as we go along, and Jack Hornfield quotes the Dalai Lama in this chapter, and he's talking about this conviction that first and foremost our responsibility is to do something about this mind. So the Dalai Lama says, 
Let yourself visualize the effects of unskillful thought patterns, such as annoyance, anger, self-judgment, and so forth. Inwardly, see how, how such thoughts affect you, the tension, the raising of your pulse rate, the discomfort. Outwardly, see how such thoughts affect others who hold them, make them upset, rigid, even ugly. Then make the compassionate determination, I will never allow such states to make me lose my peace of mind. And it doesn't mean that we'll necessarily be successful, but it's really coming from this place that, first and foremost, our responsibility is to this heart, this mind. Even more than our children, more than the world, it doesn't mean that we don't love and care about our children or partners or the world. It just means that the way we express our care is to take care of the mind. This is how we learn how to take care of the world. I mean, this is the great thing that any activist, anybody who's engaged in life needs to learn, that we can't neglect the mind and live a good life or, or do good things in the world. If we're angry, if we're bored, if we're uh, sort of needy, uh, filled with craving, or hateful, or fearful, or any unwholesome, negative, painful state of mind, it gets in the way of everything else we do. And in, in a sense, everything else we do is coming out of that limited, narrow state of mind. So if we can immediately transform that negative state of mind by being powerfully open, simple, clear, and wise, then, of course, that's what we should do. We make that, that out of confidence in mindfulness, confidence in being open. We just open. So there we are, being an ignorant human being, reacting, struggling with greed, with anger, and then a moment of mindfulness and to whatever amount that frees up, then we appreciate the freedom, the space. We trust it. Trust the non-clinging, the non-grasping mind. We trust the falling away of the suffering. But if any suffering remains, any identification or attachment or struggle or fear remains, then we have to continue to engage it to be afraid of it or to not want to be a suffering human being doesn't help. Or sometimes Buddhists play the emptiness card. Well, this suffering isn't real. Well, if it's real, it's real. If we're actually a suffering human being in that moment, then we should, the compassionate response is to do something about it. And so, we, like I said before, we could just ask the question, well, what, what can I do? What might I do now? Because I care about how it is, I care about the mind feeling the pain of fear, feeling the pain of greed or neediness, feeling the pain of anger, feeling the pain of disconnection. Because I feel that pain, I'm aware of that pain, I care about it. What could I do? What can I try? And of course, we want to try something different than what we've been doing, because if what we've been doing would work, 
we would be feeling it. So let's try something, this is the creative part, to try something different. So I'll just give one example. Next week we'll talk more about some examples. But, you know, and like I said earlier, this, is, this can be quite messy, this work, to transform the mind. So one of the teachings the Buddha gives is called substitution. And the image is it's really uh, graphic in a, in a way that really helps us remember. So just as a carpenter would use a, a solid wooden peg to pound out and replace an old rotten wooden peg, in the same way, a practitioner would bring up a wholesome state of mind to replace an unwholesome state of mind. And so an obvious example would be if we're caught in fear and aversion, hatred, anger, we could bring up loving kindness, you know, the opposite. And it sounds, you know, it can sound like where we'd be repressing the anger. But we're not repressing the anger as much as we're remembering the possibility of kindness. And it doesn't have to be kind, kindness toward the object we're angry at or afraid of. It doesn't really matter what we bring the kindness up around. Anything will work because the mind can't be opening to kindness and at the same time trapped in anger or hatred or fear. And we can just experiment with this. Now the question is, are we willing to experiment? And this is the thing. So the next time you're even, and it's actually better when you're not overwhelmed with anger, but just subtle anger, like irritation, I, I mentioned earlier. It's a good one. So you're just irritated. Like the day isn't going well, traffic pushed a button, this person didn't get done what they needed to get done, and I had this embarrassing interaction, and that sort of feels a little heavy in my heart. And we're just feeling the irritation. And then we, then we remember this teaching, right? Okay, I'm, I want to do something about this weight in my heart. What can I do? Well, first and foremost, we practice opening. Opening so powerfully to the aches or pain in the heart that the identification or attachment to the pain might fall away. In which case, we'd experience an immediate freedom it would be a, a moment of liberation where we went from being a person burdened to awareness that's unburdened. But if that doesn't work, then we want to get messy, take responsibility, and begin to experiment. Oh, well, yeah, these things happen today, and I could think about them, and every time I think about them, I'm just reinforcing that feeling of irritation or that burden in my heart. Well, why not think about other things? I remember, you know, I remember how warm the sun felt today. That was really nice. Oh, I really appreciate the cycles of the season. Right? Just like we can appreciate how it smells when spring starts to come in. And we can appreciate the warmth of the sun. We can appreciate how it affects people. You know, just the quality, the spirit in the air when we're around other people on a warm day like this. And, you, and just in 
easy, natural ways, the heart starts to have some kindness, some caring. There's some love there, or gentleness. You know, all the different, you know, love has many different flavors. One of the images in Buddhism about metta, or love, universal love, not like a, I love a hamburger kind of love, is that it, it, it immediately fills any container, like they say, as water would immediately fill, no matter what jar, shaped jar you pour the water into, the water doesn't have any problem filling that shape. The same with when we access loving kindness, this warmth and uh, inclusivity, these qualities of warmth and inclusivity, the heart just knows how to be in the moment, knows how to connect, how to include what's going on. It's like we say sometimes when we're appreciating people, uh, they're just really comfortable in their own skin. I actually like that because I, I think, in, in my experience, it's often a sign of somebody who's done really good practice, whether they do formal Buddhist practice or not, doesn't matter, but somebody who's used their life as practice to learn. One of the telltale signs is that they're really comfortable in their own skin, which means they've learned through trial and error not to struggle with the way it is. So if their personality or their body or their life situation is a particular way, it's not that they've given up, but they understand in this moment this is how it is. And that comfortable in our own skin, that's a quality of kindness. Because what does kindness look like when we're relating, aware of this body and mind? It would be that experience of being comfortable in our own skin. Not afraid to be what or who we are. Not caught by it, but also not dependent on any denial or uh, pattern of disconnection. Some, um, a couple paragraphs from Jack Hornfield's book. He's talking about this. He says, The Buddhist perspective takes the process further. We can learn to see that distorted thoughts based on self-hatred, aggression, revenge, and greed are not in our genuine in interest. We can actually see that these thoughts do not have our well-being in mind. They are like a bad friend or an approaching mugger and we can recognize their harmful potential and immediately turn in another direction. So we don't need, you know, being accepting or being open isn't the same as allowing the mind to get caught in destructive emotions or destructive mind states. Being open means that the mind recognizes destructive states that are arising and recognizes them as destructive states that are arising. And then the next thing the mind, the open mind, will recognize is uh, this very powerful movement of compassion. Honey, don't go there. It's not safe to go there. 
and he goes on, he quotes uh, Achan Shah. He says, Achan Shah described this as recognizing bad mangoes. We call them bad apples. And then he quotes Achan Shah. When we choose a fruit to eat, do we pick up the good mangoes or the rotten ones? It is the same in the mind. Learn to know which are the rotten thoughts and immediately turn from them to fill your basket with ripe, beautiful mind states instead. So for the next couple weeks, we'll take at least one more week uh, to talk about these ideas from this chapter, this mind training and transforming the mind. And to remember, part of it is a bit like magic. When the confidence is strong and the conditions align just right, the mind can go from a very contracted, narrow, self-centered state to an experience of freedom. Without any of this work, this experimentation that I've been talking about. But other times, the mind is really caught. And when that's not working, instead of the only other option being to give up, we experiment. We see, how can I transform the mind? What has worked in the past? What have my wise friends suggested might work? What haven't I tried? And we try it. And we track and see. <coughs> we see what comes from that, trying, what sort of benefit. And if it helps, we try to understand what was it that allowed the mind to release. So we'll know better next time. If it didn't work, we try to understand how was the mind deluded in thinking this might work when it didn't work. Like, how many times did it, does it seem to us that complaining to somebody is going to work? It's going to actually alleviate the pain in our heart? And then if we really track it, we realize it doesn't help. I mean, most of the time, complaining doesn't help, right? But if we really saw that it didn't help, we would have weeded that habit out a long time ago. It's because we're not tracking once we try something to, to take care of us, take care of the heart. Once we try something, we have to track it to see what it delivers. If we do that tracking, if we stay mindful, we'll learn quite a bit in life. This is what, you know, if, you, if you've been around a good elementary school teacher, this is what makes a good elementary school teacher. Whether it's an academic issue or a social issue, when the student is you know, struggling to, to get a lesson, like how to be a friend or how to solve a problem, math problem. You know, whether it doesn't matter whether the student's being successful right now or unsuccessful, what the teacher is going to do is help them track it. Like, well, what did, what did you do? Well, what happened? Was that what you wanted to happen? How did that feel, what happened? Was that the result you were looking for? Oh, well, what might you do differently? Have you done it before? What happened when you did that? Oh, how would that look in this situation? You see, it's all about understanding cause and effect. And this is what we can do with mindfulness. Mindfulness can either be immediately liberating when it's strong and balanced, stable, or if it's not able to be immediately liberating, we use mindfulness to track our very normal, conventional efforts to set in motion happiness, set in motion mental release, the release of the heart. 
and just learning from our mistakes as much as we learn from our successes. So we have 15 minutes now. It would be nice to hear from people your own experience of how you've directly transformed your mind and ways you've learned don't work for you in transforming your mind. And of course, any questions that you have about what I've said or about this topic that seem relevant, so what comes to mind? Yes, please say your name. like that is something that arises 
out of the situation itself. Now, sometimes we'll come into a, a situation like we have a problem with a particular individual. We'll come into it with a, an idea. You know, in the past, I tend to respond to this person in this way, and it's always messy. So, I'm not going to respond. I'm going to try to respond in this other way. And to some degree, that can be useful to have a bad agenda, to break an old habit, to try something else. But once things start working better, then we want our response to come out of the moment itself, not from a preconceived idea of how I should be in that, because we don't really know what the moment is until we're there. And then the appropriate response to that moment is exactly coming out of what's actually happening in that moment. And this is what make, makes life so enlightening when we can live this way. It's not easy to live this way, but when we can let our response come out of the moment instead of feeling like we have to have our ducks in a row and know how I'm going to do with this person and how I'm going to do with that person and then later. I mean, that's a tight way to live. And often that's how we do live. And then we get exhausted and then we don't want to pay attention at all. So we tend to swing back and forth. But when we have the, a more momentum in the mindfulness, we really start trusting that the skillful response will come if we emphasize being open and present. And then you might find, without planning it, you might just find yourself saying in an appropriate way, you know, um, I just have to say that, you know, when we set a time, I'd like to, I'd like it to, you know, to know whether you're really going to be there at that time, or if you're not going to be at that time, then let me know. Or, you know, but just to be real about how you're feeling with that person, because you're feeling that way, you know. And part of having an authentic relationship with a colleague at work is to be, you know, in ways that are appropriate, to be able to share how you're experiencing the moment and to, and to share your needs, just like it's appropriate to understand their needs, too. And, you know, we'll find ourselves saying things if we emphasize mindfulness, because that movement, like to respond, it will just arise. And as it's arising, because we're mindful, we'll have a sense it may not be perfect, meaning it may have a little bit of a charge, but it's healthier to say it than not saying it also has a charge. Right? There's a negativity to not saying it. So saying it doesn't have to be perfect. It just has to be in the direction of wholesomeness. You know, and different than what hasn't been working. So if not saying anything hasn't been working, you can experiment with saying something. And if you need to prompt yourself, then you can use your imagination. Like, imagine the situation and imagining an authentic response. And that can kind of grease the wheel, and then it can be a more of a natural response than in the moment, but something you practiced a little bit. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. That's really good example that we have to work with in life. Sure. Um, yeah, I, I, uh, I really like this lecture. I think you're really on tonight. Anyway, one thing I've noticed, in fact, I thought of this as I was riding over here on my bike, like, uh, I, I have this thing of, like, kind of liking the mind. Uh, you know what I mean? And it 
Well, I have some thoughts uh, and see if that makes sense. But uh, one thing that happens when we like the mind, you know, we're actually seeing something about the potential of the mind. And it's very exhilarating. There's a lot of joy, a lot of energy can come, even, even on an intellectual level. But once it's even beyond that, so it's partly intellectual and partly based on experience, direct experience of the mind, there can be a lot of energy. And it's a tricky place because that joy, that positive energy, can be diluting, even more diluting than pain is. Because the mind, the old patterns of the mind, start to take that joy, that exuberance, personally. And it gets identified. And so this is one of the real edges, uh, difficulties in practice, is as the mind begins to open up and the mind in a sense, realizes the potential, the potential for love, the potential for ease, the potential for freedom, is to have a very calm and uh, sort of trusting but impersonal relationship with the joy, with the beauty, not to take the beauty personally. That the mind, if it can be, very expansive and very beautiful, love, kindness, compassion, gratitude, forgiveness, these are expansive states. In Buddhism, we call them immeasurable emotional states. They literally have no boundaries. And the ego can really trip out with that because the ego likes power. You know, It likes drama, and so it gets into these narrow tight states because it gives it a sense of intensity. So it likes that pressure of intensity, but it also likes uh, the energy of freedom. And so we have to, as soon as the mind starts to get identified, and you suggested this, you're, you're already noticing that that hurts. It's subtle. But the identification with the joy, if you can start to pick up on it, that will help the mind relax. And just let it be beautiful without taking it personally. Let it be expansive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let your life just happen. All the good creativity. Just let it happen. But it, it, I think, you know, this is a real uh, challenging place. And, you know, a lot of spiritual seekers get caught in getting identified with expanded states of mind. Thanks for bringing that up. Other thoughts? Yeah, Dan. Just uh, a question on that. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.